Hello friends, welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and, and well, anybody who has a preacher. <laughs> I'm Tim McNinch. <laughs> and I'm Rachel Red. I have a preacher, I love my preachers in my life. This week, First Reading is coming to you with the text for March 22nd, 2020, and that is 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. We are slowly working our way towards Easter and towards the completion of Lent, and I would just encourage you preachers as we get closer and closer, I know it's really tempting to just focus on the gospel, but like Christmas, the Easter story and the passion narrative become so much more filling and so much more rich when you don't ignore all of the Old Testament resonance that is uh, coming with it. So as you listen to these episodes and think about these sermons, be listening for ways that what we talk about might even lead into an Easter sermon or something along those lines. But we're not quite that far today, so don't panic. Everyone breathe deep. Easter is not next week yet. Tim is going to bring you some insights into 1 Samuel 16 today. So, Tim, what are you what are you doing with this text? Is there anything in particular that jumped out at you? Yeah, sure. So this uh, is a famous text. Uh, it's the anointing of David by Samuel to be king uh, in in place of Saul. This happens while Saul is still king, and so there's quite a bit of 1 Samuel that plays out before this anointing comes to fruition in David becoming king. But it's a, it's a really important sort of turning point because it comes right after Saul is rejected by God, and Samuel the prophet is upset about that, and God tells Samuel in the first verses that we're looking at to get over it and go anoint the new king. This whole story is Samuel's trip to Bethlehem to find Jesse and his sons and to find among Jesse's sons the next king. Okay, so Samuel doesn't want to do this thing, and yet God sees in this particular man and his sons something good for the future of Israel. Is there anything significant with what God is talking about there as he describes this to Samuel? Yeah, in in fact, if we just take a quick look at the first verse there, we see that Samuel is instructed to go to Bethlehem and to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. In many of the translations, it says, uh, for I've decided on one of his sons to be king. This is a point where uh, a little uh, peeling back the, the English to see the Hebrew behind it is really helpful because quite literally it says, because I have seen from among his sons for me a king. And, and in English, we don't usually see it, say something like, I've seen for me a king. That's kind of awkward. But in the Hebrew, it's pulling out that particular verb as a way of indicating that this story is going to be about sight and about what God sees and about how God sees. So that's, a, that's an important little tidbit to keep an eye on. And as we get further into the text, we can refer back to that little insight. So does that word, the, the Hebrew word for sight, does that come up as kind of a theme word throughout this story? It is. In fact, uh, it's really the, the heart of this whole text. Uh, in fact, I would probably just drive us right to the central verses of this passage, which are in uh, 6 and 7. So Samuel gets to Bethlehem and Jesse parades his sons before Samuel. (laughs) And the the first one to come across is Eliab or Eliab. 
And uh, this son is, he's the eldest. He's tall. He's good looking. He reminds us a lot of Saul in, in, in his appearance. And Samuel's response is, well, this is definitely the one. But what God says is really instructive. Pay no attention to his appearance. And that word appearance, again, in the Hebrew, that's mare, which comes from the same root of sight, ra'ah. And, and so, again, it's don't pay attention to what he looks like or to what you mm. see of him, for I've rejected him. And that language of rejection is the same language that we heard about Saul in the, in the previous chapter. I have rejected him, says God. This almost feels a little bit like a divine 4-H show. If, if you've ever been to a 4-H show, you know they parade out the cattle and they're brushed and they're beautiful and they're well-fed. And it's almost like God is, is being like all of that work into external appearances for nothing. Yeah, yeah. A 4 show or a beauty pageant or whatever, yeah. oh, sort of, yeah. whatever sort of metaphor works there. But then it gets to uh, the second part of verse 7. I've rejected him for not as a man sees, does the Lord see, as the JPS puts it. Man sees only what's visible, but the Lord sees into the heart. This is the point that this passage is trying to make. God sees differently than people see. Hmm. I, I'd spent a little bit of time, Rachel, trying to unpack that Hebrew for myself because it's unusual the way that it's constructed there. And its meaning is a little bit ambiguous. So, so here's the phrase in Hebrew, and I'll translate it quite literally. Ki ha'adam for a person sees to the eyes. But God sees to the heart. So a person sees to the eyes, but God sees to the heart. What's tricky about that is that preposition to, to the, can be taken a number of different ways. And one of the possibilities is also with. So a person sees with the eyes, which makes sense of that phrase. But then the second phrase, which, mirror, which parallels that, would be then that the Lord sees with the heart. Okay, so this is interesting because my mind went right away to kind of like the sort of elementary school maxim that we teach kids that it's not the outward appearance that matters, but it's what's on the inside that counts. I mean, I think that's one of the ways this text has been taken a lot, but it feels like you're starting to tip towards maybe a, a slightly different understanding of the text than that. Yes, because the, the way that this line works is not talking about the object of sight. It's talking about the means of sight. With people, it's the eyes. It's, it's seeing what, what is apparent to the eyes. With God, it's what's apparent to the heart. And so I, I took a look at like seven or eight different English translations and a German and a Greek one too, just for good measure. Show off. <laughs> They all flip the second phrase so that the first one is about how people see, but the second one is about what God sees, the ah. heart, the heart of David. And so it's implying, these translations are implying that there's something in David's heart that, that God sees in this passage that provokes God to choose him over his brother's. But the, the line itself in Hebrew is exactly parallel so that the first part about how people see is just like the second line about how God sees. 
So I would like to explore for just a minute what that could mean. If people see with the eyes, but God sees with the heart, just off off the cuff, what, how would you think about seeing with the heart, what that could mean? Yeah, that's such a great question because lev, uh, the, so the Hebrew word for heart is lev. They didn't uh, have a word for brain. They didn't have any word that we would connect to the, the squishy pink thing inside of our head. <laughs> uh, but a lot of the functions of the brain are attributed to the heart. Um, and then I, there's this, this kind of other meaning of volition or will of, of what we want to do, what we will to do. Um, so if you're seeing things by means of your heart, if you're seeing things through your heart, it could carry some of those resonances. It could carry with uh, that sort of intellectual, you know, I'm, I'm really reasoning through things. Um, if you're seeing through your emotional heart, it's maybe more of like a gut instinct that's being attributed there. Or if you're seeing through the volition or the will of your heart, it's sort of that you have this plan. You've got a thing that you want done. And so you're seeing what's going to help best uh, um, complete that plan. Uh, that's just kind of off the top of my head some ways that I could think through that. What did you make of it? No, I think that that's exactly the direction that I was going with it, which reflects us back again to the first verse where it says that God sees for God's self among the sons of Jesse, a king. Uh, and, and the way that is often translated as I've decided on or I've chosen for myself a king has that reflection too of God has made a willful decision by seeing one of Jesse's sons. But it's not the way people see with our eyes that are so easily deceived by, you know, the, the characteristics that David's brothers had here of being tall and of, you know, good, good stature and all of that. Interesting, because if this were talking about David's heart instead of God's heart, then we'd expect that to show up, right? Right. We would expect it to say that, and here's David, and wow, his heart was just so pure and so devoted. <laughs> but no, it, he just is described like the, the rest of them, except, you know, he's a little shorter than his brothers. And, uh, you know, he has, he has attractive eyes, you know. <laughs> he's batting his eyelashes. That's, that's right. That's right. So there's nothing there about David's heart that would sort of attract God to have chosen him. Instead... Mm. God has chosen David because of God's own live, God's own heart, the will, the plan, the reasoning of God's own heart. And that's the contrast that's that's made in this text, which is which is really important because uh, in the larger context of really all of the book of Samuel is the contrast between Saul and David. Saul, it was easy to, to make the mistake of, of choosing him. And in fact, Saul was, at least in one rendition of it, chosen by sort of popular vote because he was so tall and he was a good warrior and, you know, he, he was a charismatic individual. People were deceived by what they saw, whereas David was chosen by God's heart. So there's something uh, in God's interior purposes that make David a successful king where Saul was an unsuccessful king. Interesting. So so this carries resonances with the idea, that sort of initial idea of don't look at someone's outward appearance, look what's in their heart. But except for the second half, right? It's kind of the don't look at the outward appearance. And then it sort of slips you from your own eyes into looking at things through God's heart. 
I think part of what's going on is that what's in God's heart is, in a way, inaccessible to us. Hmm. That's God's own thing. So uh, it's not so much about our choices, I think. I mean, it's telling us to be careful not to be deceived by what we see. That much is true. But I think this passage is actually less about the way that we choose, and it's more about our response to God's choices and how we second-guess God's choices. (laughs) It's saying that God is not deceived by appearances like we are. God has an internal, interior, in-the-heart-of-God motivation for the choices that God makes. And when God's choices don't fit our expectations, I think this is a passage that's saying, well, God gets to be God. God's choices come from God's own heart, from God's wise will. Although I would, I might want to uh, touch on a preaching pitfall here. Mm, because so even fun. hearing those words come, come out of my mouth in that sort of Calvinistic direction, which is all <laughs> well and good... <laughs> There's also the danger of saying to people who are suffering or who are struggling against injustice, you know, don't sweat it. It's all part of God's plan. Hmm. God has made all these choices and, you know, there's nothing you can do about it anyway. So just accept it. Hmm. I think that's actually a, a more of a dangerous way of interpreting this uh, because hmm. it's, it's not saying that everything happens is a part of God's perfect plan. It's saying that the the choices that God makes come from within God. So rather than sort of an explanation for all of the crap that happens in the world, I think there's more of a pastoral edge when we second-guess God's choice of us. Hmm. And and maybe that's where I would take a sermon on this text. That uh, when we look at ourselves, both perhaps at our external appearance, but even at our own hearts and find that there's a bunch of garbage in there too. And we wonder why God would choose us to be a part of what God's doing in the world. I think this is a passage that says God doesn't make God's own choices based on something that God sees in us or about us. God chooses out of God's own purpose. God chose David not because of what David had done or didn't do, but because of what God had for him to do. And I think God chooses us too because of what God has for us to do. So it's not, it's not on us to try to measure up to something. It's actually God's work to equip us for the calling that we get from God. And I think when we downplay our own potential because of what we see of ourselves, we're actually doing what this text says that people tend to do. We're just, you know, we're making judgments by appearances. We're seeing with the eyes, but God sees with the heart. And that's an encouraging thing. I really like that. And this is a really rich text that I I don't think I would have gotten there just on initial reading because it is so famous. So thanks for expounding on it for us. You bet. Well, folks, uh, we hope that that was helpful in in, uh, juicing the gears. That's mixing metaphors in a gross kind of way, but I'm going to stick with it. Your sermonic gears today. Uh, Hope that you enjoyed it and found something helpful. If you did, head on over and maybe give us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks for listening and happy preaching.